Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. Uh, this week we've got some new lenses. We've got some ISO shootouts between the A7S and A7 Original. But first, what do you got for me, Devin? Where you been? What have you been doing? Oh, I've been uh, I've been stuck in in this chair, just editing motion graphics like crazy. Uh, just way too much, not enough time, too many client requests. You know how that goes. Oh man, I if you guys have been watching the show live in the video format, <laughs> you've probably seen me get scruffier and scruffier over the last couple of weeks. And that's because I haven't gone to the barber, haven't really shaved or anything else. This is actually I'm clean shaven now. I've gotten a haircut. You know, it's no longer out of control up here. And that's because I finished my editing job and I'm back at it again, which is awesome. And also, for those of you listening to this, uh, you may get lower quality audio this week because my field recorder just took a dump on me and I don't know what's going on oh. with this. So there's that too. But I am glad to be done. I'm sorry that you're stuck in the chair, Devin. <laughs> you got anything else before we move on to the news? No, let's get straight to the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. All right, first thing on the list here is actually the ISO shootout. This is really kind of interesting. This is the Sony a7S versus the Sony a7S Mark II. And uh, there's some great videos over at newshooter.com. You should definitely check those out. And it basically is comparing the low ISO performance, or excuse me, the high ISO performance in video between the Sony a7S and the Mark II. Both of these cameras use the same sensor, but there's some extra trickery going on in the background that obviously provides a little bit better noise control in high ISO settings. It looks like if you watch the videos, and I don't know if you've seen these yet, Devin, but at mm-hmm. 12,800 or so, the A7S Mark II starts to pull ahead in in terms of noise performance. Did you take a look at these? I, I did, and I think that um, it, it's a nice marginal improvement, um, but... It's one of those that almost feels unneeded in general. I mean, I always thought that the A7S kind of did more, um, performed so well in low light that why would you ever need more? But it's good to see that they're making advances in that department. Uh, I think it's just more interesting, the whole 4K part of it. I think that's the part that really makes it worth the price if this is an option that people are considering. Yeah, it's 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 really strange that uh, there's that much of a difference. Now, I will say, looking at the video in full 100% 1080p and not you know scaling in or anything it's hard to tell the difference like the, mm-hmm. the the stuff is really subtle but when you watch the 400x crop which you know obviously none of us are going to look that close at a 1080p <laughs> footage unless we're pixel peaking uh it, it it doesn't look that bad you know a four, 400x crop is where you see the like kind of crawliness of the noise and mm-hmm. i kind of wonder like are we losing image resolution what they're doing in order to control that noise and what's kind of going on in the background. I'm, I'm guessing that's on processor uh, noise reduction of some kind, maybe an algorithm or whatever running to produce the better low light performance. Same chip though. So n- your sensor quality, the image that's coming out of that, it's going to be fairly similar. They've got to do some kind of post-processing, right? Yeah. And it's, I, because I feel like that's the only place that you could take it is you could do more, uh, processing with the sensors because, uh, like we've discussed before, uh, com- it's the chips, the CPUs that are getting cheaper. And uh, while sensor technology has certainly been chugging along, it hasn't been going nearly as fast as how many gigahertz you can cram inside of your electronics. So it only makes sense that um, uh, 
you know, instead of necessarily focusing so much on expensive sensor that can give you better low light, you focus on a CPU chip that can turn the image better when shot in low light, like we discussed before with those, um, uh, I don't necessarily want to call them GoPro knockoffs, but those Chinese uh, small action cams that we were talking about that included noise reduction from a, a CPU area where it uh, was actively doing noise cancellation on the, on the image. So uh, for me, though, it's like I said, it's, it's it's only when you like pixel peep it's only when you really get crazy and you really go in there and dive into it and it just it seems irrelevant to me because i've been doing so much pixel peeping with a7s footage the original and the two this past week and i'm like ah you know what i feel like i'm spending all this time and learning nothing because the the you know it's it's such a small minute difference now, the other thing that's really interesting is the A7S and the A7S Mark II both use the Bonsai X processor. So that mm-hmm. means that the A7S and the A7S Mark II don't have any real difference in terms of CPU horsepower. Uh, that may be incorrect. Bonsai X is a very generic name, so possibly they're using some other flavor of or upgraded version of the CPU, and they're just labeling it as a Bonsai X. This is probably an ARM processor running in the background. But mm-hmm. that could also mean that the a firmware update to the A7S original could give it the same low-light performance as the A7S Mark II. Uh, do you think Sony's just holding back artificially? Uh, that was suspected a lot in the 4K internal recording mode as well. Do you think that might mm-hmm. be the case with low noise performance? Uh, it's Since I didn't design it, I, I can't say that that's wrong. Uh, but for me personally, I feel like there's a lot more that goes on to uh, a board that you put inside of a camera where while you know maybe the cpu chip is the same or something like that most of the time things like video shooting is a dedicated h264 chip and that's usually why you don't see things like really denoising uh or anything like that usually it's just like a soften tool or some other basic image function that's being performed so it, it could be possible that while they're using the same image processor per se when it's kicking out to h264 uh, it's going by a different process because it may have a different encoder setup uh, I mean, after all, it won't be long until they start including dedicated H.265 chips, which will have way more features in the way that it interprets footage before it saves it down to the disk. So I really like, you know, it, it's from the spec sheet. You can say these are exactly kind of the same hardware and theoretically you think it should be possible. But the design and the pipelines and everything else, it's just more sophisticated than that. And I'm not that smart to say if it's a uh, one way or the other. Yeah, there's so many different flavors of ARM chips out there. Uh, Sony rebranding something as their own means that it could be really nothing have, new. Yeah, anything <laughs> under the hood, uh, any Cortex uh, A7 or A57 all the way up to A50 or 53 all the way up to A57 could be in there. So uh, mm-hmm. hard to say for sure. That's kind of interesting. Go check out those videos. Definitely worth looking at if you are trying to determine which one to buy. I still think the A7S original is probably still the best deal. I think the price is down to 1650 bucks new. Yeah, and- I've been watching those. If, oh, if, you, if you hunt, you can probably find one for $1,500. Uh, they pop up on eBay every once in a while, a little used, but uh, looking great nonetheless. One of the guys I work with is actually trying to talk me into selling the A7S and getting the A7S Mark II. And uh, you know, I'm looking at this. I'm like, when do we use this? And he's like, well, uh, low light. I'm like, okay. And how often do we need that little bit of extra out of it? He's like, well, 
we're really impressed with how it shoots. Okay, are we going <laughs> to shoot in 4K? Well, no, probably not. Then don't worry about it. I'm going to stick with my A7S, and I'm not going to spend the extra money. Plus, this is devalued by a, a grand and some change now, so it's right. kind of a keeper for me. Uh, definitely not an investment that I need to make in my camera equipment. Although yeah. I would say like I Jones for 4K and everything these days, and that is sort of a thing. Right. And I, I've never been one about the external recorder. I know a lot of other people are, but you, you like having pretty minimal gear in terms of what you're carrying around the entire time and running around with. And I'm I'm similar in that department, too. Uh, I care less about, you know, a second recorder that's doing 10 bit whatever or, you know, super flat profiles than I am about uh, getting my lighting right and getting, um, you know, the composition right. So. Well, and the other thing I've run into with an external recorder on the A7S is noise at 4K is pretty predominant. Um, I'm guessing, and from the footage I've seen of 4K internal recording on the A7S Mark II, uh, in low light, 4K still is pretty noisy. Uh, The benefit of going to 1080p is really what kind of decreases that noise footprint in your shot, to, to me anyway. That's what I've seen. Uh, in in shots and it does, the camera, and so. it does other things too. I mean, um, there's there's a reason why people, you know, uh, in c- cinema, you know, because while we talk about punching and stuff like that, uh, there's there's reasons why uh, people who shoot with reds and stuff shoot at 6K, even though they're going to deliver to 10K, and it's not for punch in, it's for downsampling the footage, because uh, you get rid of so many problems like aliasing and everything else when you take high res images and you downsample them. You know, we've been doing it in video game and 3D rendering for the longest time now. Uh, you know, if anyone does 3D graphics, you, they know, even though it costs way more time, you get a much better image if you're super sampling or multi-sampling your uh, CGI than if you just do it at the resolution you're going to distribute at. And video kind of falls under the same thing, uh, you know, even though now we're getting spoiled by it. And, you know, originally we were up-sampling uh, smaller sensors so that they would you know have as many pixels as we need and now it's kind of the reverse but i think that's part of the reason why the a7s image looks so detailed is because of the fact that it's down sampling it which helps with noise it helps with aliasing and edges and things like that and makes a great sharper and also smoother image because uh, it's not just all about sharpness now moving on down the line to some lenses out there this is actually fairly interesting i'm kind of excited about this i know maybe devin you're less excited <laughs> about lenses because there's a new lens every week but this is the uh sigma 20 millimeter f14 it's basically the widest f14 available for uh full frame cameras this is interesting 899 is the price tag on this guy Compare that to the Canon offering, the closest Canon offering, which would be the 24-millimeter F1.4 Mark II. I believe that's $1,500. So this is about half the price, a little bit wider, giving you a better spread if you go 20, 35, 50, and 85. And this kind of rounds out Sigma's line of pretty excellent primes. What do you think about this 20-millimeter F1.4 offering? Uh, it's it's exciting, um, even though it's a you know pr- uh, what I imagine because from using the Sigmas before, it's gonna be big because it's full frame. But still, one point four, you can't beat that. You put this up against Canon's line, and I bet you you'll probably get ninety five percent of the performance you get uh, compared to like an L series lens because that's what Sig- Sigma's been doing with their lenses for such a long time is being almost just as good as Canon for like half the price. So it's it's super exciting to see. I was just looking at prices of L series, and you know a lot of the one point four stuff. 
uh, for their primes is still what 1500 for most of it for your uh, mid and uh, telephoto range. So, uh, and the fact that they've got a really nice lineup now, I mean, you're right. 20 seems strange. You think they'd go to 18 or something like that since they have a 24, but still you're getting a huge set of beautiful primes here all at 1.4 and they're all under a thousand. So there are some positive things and some negative things to this too, to think about, uh, in terms of focusing, if you are a focus ring aficionado, uh, these <laughs> are autofocus lenses, so the focus throw on the ring isn't extremely far, and it, it does have a little bit of slip, same thing you see on like uh, Canon L-series lenses, so keep that in mind. But the positive for Nikon shooters is you finally get to turn your focus ring the correct direction, so <laughs> if you've been frustrated for years with uh, Nikon shooting and turning your lens the wrong way, it's pretty nice to move into the regular camp i guess i shouldn't say the right way or the wrong way i should say the nikon <laughs> or the canon way you're gonna but, start upsetting people yeah uh no offense to anybody who feels that the nikon direction you turn your focus ring is the correct one that's fine whatever but this is a nice setup and you know having what one two three four five lenses uh that under five thousand dollars it's a pretty attractive offer now i will say they haven't updated the 85 millimeter f1.4 yet that's still sitting on the previous generation and the 85 f1.4 original as well as the pre-art series 50 millimeter f1.4 both did suffer on some canon bodies from focus drift so keep that in mind it was also i, I think they some of them were reporting back focus and some were reporting front focus i don't know mm -hmm. which is the more common problem to have with those but i know the 51.4 original before the art series has been on sale all over the place for like four fifty to five hundred dollars, and the eighty uh, five millimeter f one four eight hundred bucks used, seven hundred bucks used. I see that all the time, and I think it's a, normally about nine forty nine. So those are two bargain lenses, but uh, AF is not as good. The other thing to note on these art lenses, and some of you are probably already familiar with this, but Sigma has a really nice USB programming kit mm -hmm. for these lenses. So if you're really trying to dial in your AF with these lenses, you can plug it into that and micro, make micro adjustments to the focus depth in order to kind of get those into line with whatever you're shooting on. So that's kind of interesting feature. Is yeah, there any cameras that do that? I, I have, can't think of any uh, manual only, or user changeable yeah, lenses like that. The only thing I've seen is... Um, is usually the adapters, things like Metabones and stuff like that. Even the older Sigmas that didn't include the USB port are still completely programmable. You just need an adapter. But uh, a few months ago, I was at a local photography, videography shop, and they had a Sigma rep there that had the adapter. And it's like, you can bring in your lenses for free. We'll upgrade it to the new firmware and uh, help you set up your lens and stuff like that. So sometimes you don't even need to buy uh, an adapter. If you have an older Sigma that doesn't have the USB port, uh, sometimes your local photography shop will have the adapter and do it for free. Because uh, Sigma is pushing really hard on customer satisfaction. Yeah, and they've got some nice stuff coming out. I Now that I was thinking about it, there is actually one other group of lenses I know that have firmware updates, and that's uh, uh, Panasonic Glass. Uh, if you go right. to the Panasonic website, you can actually download the camera firmware as well as the lens firmware and add that to your card and then update the firmware for your lens via the camera, which is kind of an A nice solution. Well, and it's, it, it's nice because um, 
updating the data on it. I think mainly the reason why they update firmware isn't so much to fix focusing problems or anything like that, like Sigma might be doing. I think it's mostly just to make it communicate better and faster with you know something new. Because I saw a bunch of those lens updates come out when the GH4 came out and a recommendation uh, yeah. that if you're using this old Lumex glass, which I mean, isn't that old, but still, you know, you could have bought it years before the GH4 came out. You should update this lens, which you could do through your GH4, which is just a nice, you know, product, a way of doing it is like, hey, if you have our Panasonic camera, you can use that to upgrade your Panasonic glass. Um, I think a lot of the times it's to try to prevent problems and it's to work better with the newer hardware, which may kind of, you know, maybe pull at a different rate in terms of where the focus is or something like that because they're trying to make things faster. So it's it's a way of uh, making sure that everything works smoothly is mostly the reason why I find updating firmware for a lot of this stuff, as opposed to other stuff like Metabones, where it's actually translating that data in between like a Canon p piece of glass and maybe, you know, Panasonic. That I feel like those firmware updates are because like they're improving their like algorithms or whatever adding they're doing. Support and so on. Yeah, adding like Canon lens support and everything else. So that's much more critical. And I think that's why from the get-go, go, those have included little USB ports for you to sit there and program them. But yeah, it's it's but it, it's good to see that because if you're going to have a lens that is electronically driven like this, where it is a virtual focus ring, you know, you'd want to hope that you'd be able to keep that updated and keep it working with all your newest lenses as opposed to, you know, Canon where they've done it one way forever. And so if you've bought a Canon lens, it's just going to work on every single Canon camera because Canon refuses to change any of that stuff. So, you know, also, too, if, these Sigmas would work great on uh, an A7S. You know, if you have problems with low light, uh, you could go ahead and throw one of these on and sh shoot at 1.4. Then you don't have a problem with low light. <laughs> I think most of these are only available in A mount. Um, I don't know if any of them are available in E mount yet. Just adapt so. it. Get the Nikon uh, F and just adapt it. <laughs> well, I, okay, so I've got the A mount to E mount adapter on my A7S, and I do use uh, A mount lenses. But it looks like, and that's actually a good point. I didn't put it in the show notes, but if you've noticed, there hasn't been a new A mount Sony camera to be announced or released in the last what year and a half. So it's about. It looks like they're they may be abandoning the A mount line and moving strictly to the E mount because how many cameras have we seen on in the E mount line in right. the like year and a half? You know they've basically done three current cameras last year and then another three cameras this year. That's a a fairly aggressive model. And then the other camera lines have kind of just been wasting away. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like eventually we're going to see really good lens selection for E mount lenses. It's it's just uh, going to take quite some time for them to catch up since they were sort of focused on like the A77 and, and those other series of cameras. I, I'm not sure about that because, uh, you know, a lot of market share has been going towards the mirrorless market and not that Sony wouldn't continue that line because they've already have money invested into it. But in terms of innovation and pushing things forward, I wouldn't be surprised if they pull most of their R&D and their develop development funds over to uh, the mirrorless sector because... Uh, the mirrorless sector right now is growing in popularity. People love the smaller size and the fact that they've done a mirrorless that's full frame that right now they're the kings of that market. And I'm sure they want to keep that way because uh, nobody else is, you know, touching that because Panasonic is sticking with the open standard of micro four thirds um, and Canon's come up with their own mount, but they don't put enough behind it that, you know, a lot of people are really going crazy for it as we've discussed, you know, every time that pops up in the news. So I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if like Sony's neglecting it on purpose, being like, ah, eh, it's not that important. Not a lot of people are screaming for it. Everyone right now 
you know, their eyes are glazed over by how great our, um, you know, A7 line is. So, you know, why don't we stick to that? Yeah, as soon as they fix the AF system, <laughs> I will scream from the rooftops. Uh, yeah, anyway, the Sigma lenses, they're a great selection. If you're in the market and you're slowly starting to move your lens lineup up to some really good primes, definitely something to check out. They are all autofocus, so if you're using for photography slash video, they're probably a good option. Might even be a better investment than going with some of the Rokinon lenses or some of the manual focus lenses out there if you are planning on doing both photography and video. Uh, at the prices they're at right now, man, I wish these were available when I started out. I wouldn't own nearly as much L-glass as right? I do. Yeah, right. man. Well, at least your at least your L glass is still worth something. But the Sigmas have come in so cheap that I don't imagine they're going to get any cheaper for a very long time. As opposed to we were just talking about before the podcast that um, the the Lumex glass now you know you pull for half the price. I remember when their twelve to thirty five was a thousand around a thousand a hundred, and now just about everyone is selling brand new for six fifty six seventy, which is a huge decrease. And their telephoto version is only a hundred bucks more than that. So uh, you know, it's right now is a good time probably to buy Lumex glass as opposed to two years ago, but the Canon has maintained its value. And I feel like these Sigmas too are going to maintain their value almost because they can't be sold any cheaper. The Canon on the other hand, refused to be sold any cheaper. So that's why they maintain their value. So it's slightly different. Not saying that Canon doesn't, you know, have fantastic. Well, glass yeah, or whatever, but like, but. Canon kind of undercuts themselves. Like my value of some of my lenses, I have the 35 millimeter F14 original, which mm-hmm. is, even though it's an L-series lens, it's a plastic, uh, plastic, right. plastic, plastic, not water sealed. You know, <laughs> it's not the best quality L-series lens. It brings shame they, to the L-series name. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, they they release a mark too. Now my 35 millimeter F14 is worth quite a bit less than it used to be. It's dropped like mm-hmm. 400 bucks in value because there's a brand new, fancier one out. Same with the uh, 24 to 70 uh, F2.8. That lens, the original was pretty valuable right up until they released the Mark II and then bam, the price fell off. And right. I, I take advantage of that too because I have uh, several ultra wide angle lenses because I like that form factor on my 5D Mark threes, And I have the 17 to 35 as well as the 35 or uh, uh, 16 to 35. And the 17 to 35 was what was replaced by the 16 to 35. And you can pick that up for I think 500 bucks, 400 bucks used because it's so far down the L series lines. I think they stopped making it in like 99 or 2001, something <laughs> like that. So it goes away. True, back. true. There's some other lenses, but I mean, you know, those gigantic uh, 400 millimeter white body ones, those I just, they're always very, very expensive. I feel yeah, like my 7200 IS still maintains like a good 1200 to $1,500 street price. So uh, definitely not something that's going <laughs> to drop too far down the line. You know what I mean? Absolutely. All right, moving on down the line to some apps. This is kind of interesting here. And we've got a couple of them to talk about. Uh, this first one here, and I'll share my screen for those of you watching this, is actually for Panasonic cameras. And we've kind of heard this whole like uh, multi-focus point shooting, bracket focusing, I think is what they're calling it, uh, be available for the GX8. Now, it looks like you can pretty much do that with any of Panasonic's camera, provided you get into the web controller app and you change the focus point via the lens controller on the camera. So what this clever app does is actually goes through 
uh, grabs a focus point, moves the lens a little bit, takes another shot, gets the focus point, so on and so forth, and then combines all those back together so that you get bracket focusing in a nice little app. Uh, the image results, I've got some links in the show notes. They look pretty decent. Uh, they look not really a, Not effect I'm into per se, but I could see it being really valuable for like uh, macro photography mm-hmm. where you don't just want the head of the fly in focus and i think there's a fly picture in here somewhere yeah right here you can actually get the entire leaf and this one right here he's got a little note that says it was 246 images combined to create this uh focus range that's available here and they they look really cool no and it's it's a good point because uh you know maybe people don't look that often at macro photography but macro photography is like usually a millimeter of focus and here you're getting entire insects and entire flowers and things like that in focus so it, it definitely, you know, provides a whole different way to shoot your macro photography. I mean, they're around the edges. It's not perfect. Uh, the solution of stacking these photos together and trying to bring all the detail out of it um, isn't perfected yet, I'd say. But still, uh, it, it's really cool to see. I think it definitely works, especially if you're trying to do a miniature effect or anything like that. Um, so I'm kind of excited to see it because uh, I enjoy macro photography from time to time. And I know that most of the time when I shoot, it's like, oh, let's get the bee's head in focus because that's all that we can get in focus when you're doing macro photography as opposed to like the entire body and stuff like that, especially if you're trying to fight light. Yeah, you really need a pretty strong light source if you're stopping down to F-16 to take a picture <laughs> of something like that. So it, it is really interesting application. It's cool to see that this can be done in an app as well as in camera. Now, this app, I've got links to in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. It's there. The example pictures are there as well. I believe it's $0.99. Cents, fairly reasonable for an experimental thing to play around with. Not 100% sure what you would do as a post-workflow if you were trying to stack uh, focus bracketing in post there's probably some apps out there if anybody knows anything about that uh send us an email because i'd like to hear a little bit more about that interested to know what you would use as a workflow for that now the other app i kind of want to talk about here and i've actually got a screen of this up and this is called polar i was going to add it to the pick of the day but i think it's better time to talk about it right now if you look at this app right here this is a free photo editing app and i know we normally talk about video stuff but it looks what do you gorgeous. really need in a photo editing app? Uh, this is just a goofy <laughs> picture of me, but you need a little bit of color correction. You need to be able to handle raw images. Right now I'm playing around with a DNG file from the Panasonic LX100. Uh, you can change your color temperature, do that sort of thing. You've got uh, vibrance controls as well as your curves for you making curves. subtle adjustments. You know, all the regular things that you need to adjust, including brightness, exposure, highlights, shadows, uh, black balance, uh, whites. Basically uh, the entire Lightroom panel. Yeah, that, everything that is like need. verbatim about the Lightroom panel, like highlights, shadows, whites, and blacks. All that kind of stuff is like right on there. And that's the thing. So this is this is not just a like toy app that you get on your phone that allows you to do a few little things. This is pretty much everything you would need to do basic editing. And, you know, saturation with color selection. So like if I wanted to make the blues really pop and and be super saturated, you know, those mm-hmm. options are all here and. This is free for uh, Chrome OS as well as uh, an extension for Chrome browser. And this I'm using in Google Launcher right now. That's free. And for $15, you can also get it in the Windows Store. So not very expensive. What's a draw support like? 
Uh, raw support, I've only tested it out with Canon raw files and DNG files. Uh, unfortunately, since I convert all my raw files to DNG, I didn't have a ton <laughs> laying around <laughs> in other formats. So but still, like, you might the be missing out take on raw. The fact that it'll process a raw file, we're talking about like, you know, something that runs inside of your browser that is doing like actual raw editing. Well, and the other thing is the footprint is super small. Uh, Lightroom's around 200 megs or so to install, maybe 300 megs. Uh, This Mm -hmm. is 2.5 megs on the install. Uh, It's super tiny. Um, The import and export features aren't all quite there. It's a... you know, it's a very simple layout for bringing in pictures and exporting them. But you you have all the basics, everything you need. Like, I could see if you're just editing, you know, some basic photos for maybe a blog post, for example, or you were doing some quick edits for a friend, you take pictures of their daughter or something like that. Probably not a professional workflow because you still need a few of the awesome dehaze filters and things like that that are available mm-hmm. in Lightroom. But... Man, this is just about everything for amateur up to like low budget pro level uh, photo editing without uh, spending to, to be any honest, money at all. I, I I'd say pro level as well because I I know some photographers who they they don't do much more than that to their photos. Uh, either they don't have a need to because they shoot it right the first time, uh, or because they simply you know just don't have a. Uh, they don't know how to. And for their clients, for whatever reason, they don't really care about uh, maybe something that is absolutely perfect or something that has more of an artistic expression. So I think that, you know, I, I could even see necessarily pros using this because, hey, it's it's easy, it's free, and it does 90% of what I need it to do. And, you, you know, it's, it's, it's like the Photoshop argument. Like you can get great tools that become very close to what Photoshop is capable of. And some of those are even free. And yet, um, y- you know, everyone gets Photoshop because that's what you're told you're supposed to get. But uh, is it really necessary? I think for a lot of people doing a lot of photography that are doing basic cleanup and stuff like that, things like Photoshop and all the advanced tools is something that they'll never necessarily learn to use. So what's the point on spending the money on unless you're really going to use all those added features? Yeah, it's. I'm really surprised at how good this is. I've only been playing around with it for a day, but it brings uh, it brings to mind a Chromebook as possibly a tool I could take with me on vacation and get you know 11 hours of battery life and do some basic photo editing and then upload it to Google Drive or something like that. Well, uh, and that's yeah, because I love Chromebooks and uh, I would love to have an excuse to use a Chromebook in production. But besides office work, uh, Chromebooks have just been lacking in development, not necessarily lacking in power, because you can buy Chromebooks with i5s and all kinds of stuff. Not that you'd video edit on anything that costs 300 bucks, at least not comfortably, but still, uh, you know, the amazing battery life of being able to sit there and work away for eight to 10 hours straight. Like, I'm fascinated by that, that nothing else is able to hit that. And I love the laptop form factor. I know that, like, tablets have been a really big thing. And now I feel like they're kind of dying off a bit because people are going back to like keyboards being like, well, I really need to do work. It's one thing if I want to consume media, but if I want to create, I need a keyboard. And Chromebooks are like small size, couple hundred bucks. It'll last you all day 
and you can type scripts all day. There's web apps for typing up scripts and everything else. And I think too, when they bring in uh, Android support for their apps, it's going to totally blow up the Chromebook market, but they're still, you know, I, I don't know why they're taking so long. I don't know what's the difficulty with that, but they're, I think they're working hard on bringing apps over to that. Uh, that's totally going to be a game changer. And while you may not still do video editing, like you said, wait, 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 you just said game changer, man. I got to, did I, I say game changer? You said game changer. No, <laughs> no, no game changers. Never oh, the game changer. Never the game changer. But like you said, if you go on vacation uh you can take a chromebook with you which is small light and would last you an entire day and you can just you know use that to sit here and do basic editing of photos upload uh as well as you know doing your basic answering emails or anything else or you could sit on you know a plane for a couple of hours and get some work done so i I super enjoy and like i said i'm always finding an excuse to try to get uh, a chromebook or two into my workflow it's just one of those that it doesn't have the development and the apps for it and I think that uh, the answer to that is, you know, bring those Android apps over because there's a there's a lot of great Android apps that work on tablets that do great things, uh, you know, that, and even some that are compatible with like plugging into your Canon camera to use as a viewfinder or whatever. So I'd love to see that stuff move over. Now, taking a, a page out of your book here and uh, talking about tablets for a second, and this wasn't in the show notes either, but it's definitely something I'm interested in. Have you seen the Surface Book? Because, yes. oh my gosh, man, that thing is super sexy. Dedicated GPU in the keyboard with extra battery power, uh, mm-hmm. full, you know, uh, Wacom integration into the touchscreen so that you can actually draw, you know, imagine doing rotoscope with a pen as mm-hmm. opposed to a mouse. Oh man, that is some sexy stuff. And the price is less sexy. I mean, I guess <laughs> hey. you bought a MacBook Pro before you're used to this, $3,199 for the one terabyte version. But man, man, right? does this thing look nice, right? It's, what it's do you such, think, Devin? It's, well, it's a very ideal production tool because um, what's the what's the i7 it has in there? Do, uh, do you have on I, it? I want to say it's the uh, uh, it, HQ4710 or maybe it's the 47... 90 but i can't you know no no but so so yeah but uh you know if it's it's probably like a 5200 hq but still uh something like that is on par uh in terms of performance with what i currently edit with which sounds silly but my 2600k that i edit with handles some 4k footage it handles hd footage just fine multiple streams everything else with ssd storage especially i mean it's really expensive, but it's also the what you potentially say like one of the ultimate production tools because you do have like the Wacom there for you know doing like you said rotoscoping or even messing around in Photoshop or drawing masks, and then at the same time, uh, you you get the portability factor. You get a, a great you know physical keyboard, which I'm always about because I'm way faster than anyone else on a physical keyboard. So it's one of those things that um, that is like man way too expensive for me but that would be a cool tool to have <laughs> you know in your backpack oh man and then uh, the choice to go just to a tablet or to a keyboard and tablet is really nice uh, mm-hmm. a lot of times when you grab your laptop you are not doing it because you're grabbing it to do production work you're grabbing your laptop because you want to head down to the bar and like check your emails and take care of a few things or you, mm-hmm. you're heading down to the coffee shop to you know, just browse around a little bit and look for something on Craigslist. And then when you needed to get down and do some serious editing, you want your full laptop. And right now I have a tiny little Asus, a 13 inch laptop for the, you know, mundane stuff of like surfing the internet and looking for things. Mm -hmm. And then I have a separate 
MSI GS60 uh, 4K monitor, crazy 15-inch form factor, um, GTX 970 GPU shoved into that thing. And it sounds like a rocket when it's taken off, but it has all the power in the world, and that's great. But what if you had both? Now, and that's sort of the proposition you're getting out of the Surface Book is it's a GTX 970 um, OEM-flavored GPU crammed in the keyboard. So you basically have a very high... Uh, rendering rates with your you know CUDA processing and everything in the or Mercury playback engine in this uh, oh man I, oh I I would trade <laughs> both my laptops just to have this guy so I could you know split things off and you know run off of the i7 processors onboard graphics card when I'm using my tablet and then work on the whole system and still have the convenient nice form factor of both the tablet for drawing or for editing, you know, certain types of uh, graphic interfaces. You know, Photoshop has really good pen integration, for example. Mm-hmm. And then going back to a full keyboard layout, because honestly, I want my space bar. I want my uh, C command, my V command, and all those other things for editing video, you know. Uh, and, and that's perfect. This would be uh, awesome. I like that we're seeing a ton of these detachable screen form factor systems mm-hmm. with like extra stuff. Now there's some other weird stuff in here and this isn't a show about laptops, but uh, <laughs> uh, definitely look into it. If you're an editor and you have three grand to spend on a, a laptop, this isn't perfect. There are definitely some dedicated, you know, four to eight pound laptops that do have way more power under the, the hood than this thing does. But mm-hmm. and sometimes you trade style and sexiness for, uh, you yeah. know, power and performance. And <laughs> if it's the right trade-off, then it might be worth it. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's uh, it's one of those that, like you said, uh, the if you compare it that way, uh, you know, the price of two tools and you're combining those two tools into one, uh, the the price almost pretends to start making more sense. Uh, but still, it's it's like right now the ultimate thing you can get if you're going to do some light editing even some light motion graphics on the go and you also want that like easy to carry light tablet like experience and stuff like that at the same time it really makes it an ideal tool for uh you know those of us who need to work on the go oh man i want a stylus (laughs) i want a drawing tablet i just have never had the justification to throw it into my bag all right moving on down the line uh, this is kind of interesting and this is from a DP review, actually. Uh, it's a quick post comparing the DxO Mark scores for both the GX8 as well as the Olympus EM5 Mark II. The EM5 Mark II was the original leader in the DxO Mark scores for image quality straight out of the camera in Micro Four Thirds format. Looks like the GX8 is beating it by just a hair, but it is an improvement. Now, the GX8 does cram in a, I believe, a 20 megapixel sensor, whereas the <laughs> OMD EM5 Mark II has the 16 megapixel sensor. I suspect the same as the GH4 and so on. What do you think about this, Devin? Is that going to make you run out and get the GX8? Uh, no, I think this is just pixel peeping. I mean, if, if you're, if you were, you haven't pulled the trigger yet on a, you know, an M5 Mark II, then this would give you something to consider. Uh, but for me, um, it's, it's just, it's one of those that like, yeah, it's down to like pixel peeping again. Like, yeah, if you really concentrate hard, both of these produce beautiful images. Uh, and I think, uh, form factor, how it feels in your hand, where the controls are, how easy it is to use in this case, 
uh, along with price is much more important than like these little marginal improvements. I mean, the 22 megapixel, I guess that's important for some people. I'm, I'm still not the person who's taking photos for print. And I still don't know of a lot of people who are using mirrorless to take photos for print. I mean, I know they're out there. I'm just saying I haven't run into them myself because uh, I think they're few and far between. But uh, in this situation, it, it's like both of these would well surpass uh, whatever I'm thinking about in terms of photography uh, to get, you know, great looking images. They're both really great at what they do. They're a really small size. Um, and so then it's one of those where I'd, you know, it's, it's, I'd want to rent it and try it out and see, Hey, how does the form factor go? Uh, you know, cause the Panasonic menus have been pretty good and their layouts for the GH3, GH4, um, and also, uh, the G7 and stuff like that. I really like their layouts. I really like how they plan everything out. Um, so it's, it's one of those where I think that's where it comes down to and not so much like, Oh, I read a stat sheet and you know, this beat out the Mark two by, you know, half a, uh, half a bit depth of color. I'm like, ah, I'm not going to notice that in my photos. It's not going to really seem all that important. So it's each their own. Uh, but for me, it's, it's not necessarily exciting. Uh, it's just one of those things to consider if this is kind of the camera you're looking for. One of the interesting things is actually to see the low light performance. If you notice uh, down here at the bottom, uh, the low light performance and the G, excuse me, on the GX8 is around 806 ISO, and the low light performance on the EM5 Mark II is around 896. Uh, you think that's just a representation of the cramming more pixels onto the same size Micro Four Thirds? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're inc increasing megapixel bore, not increasing sensor size. This is one of the reasons why. Um, I, you remember long ago, uh, with the, uh, the iPhone 3G. Holy cow, uh, man. Going right? back to like 2011. Right. And, uh, for a while, because I was a novice and I knew nothing, I would brag about how I think at then it was like a windows mobile six phone. I had my windows mobile six phone had like 3.2 megapixels or something like that. And my buddy's iPhone had 1.3 megapixel and everyone complained about how there were so few megapixels in the iPhone. And then I noticed as we took photos, all of his low light photos looked really good and mine looked really garbage. I mean, at the time they were both grainy photos, but at least you could see what was going on in his photos. And part of that reason is because they weren't pushing megapixels in order to keep good performance in low light, which let's face it, most cell phones are fighting low light because they're tiny sensors and they're, they're usually not a camera you're using, you're, you're always using with available light. So low light performance is really important in those kind of cameras. And that's something that I always remembered as being like, yeah, you know, megapixels isn't everything. You cram more megapixels in there, but you don't increase the sensor size. You're going to run into problems trying to get all that light out of that image. So it's, it's probably directly related to the two. I mean, it looks like from the numbers and from some of the photos that they're pretty much still the same. You know, it's not like I could look at the two photos like you can with an A7S and a G4 and be like, oh, this low light was the A7S. It's not yeah. that dynamic. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, if I guess if you want an edge in that department, then that would be the camera to go for. But like I said, uh, in terms of how close these are, I, I'd way prioritize usability. How does it feel in my hand? Are all the controls immediately in front of me? Does this work the way I like to work? Because uh, you take, you know, like Sony and their absolutely horrific, terrible menu system. It's like that makes it a real hassle to use. So, you know, for me, I'm like the, a Sony camera has to have really good features for me to want to suffer through its uh, interface system. 
Yeah, the the form factor is actually a pretty big deal. Like the GH4, and that's what I kind of wonder. I haven't messed around with the uh, GX8 yet. The GH4 has kind of the full-size hand grip, which even for someone with large hands like me feels pretty good to hold on to and to shoot with. The uh, GX8 is sort of got that weird flat shape. It, it, mm-hmm. It's sort of a rangefinder look, which is cool looking, but in right. practical use, you know, is that going to be very comfortable to hold on to? It also appears to be, a tad bit taller than the GH4 uh, in side-by-side shots that I've seen. So, I don't know. Uh, I like the I, idea I, of the GA, uh, GX8, but... Uh, I, I, and I think part of that design scheme is that it's it's a thought process about how the camera is being used. I'm not a designer, so, uh, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But I feel like things like the GH3 and GH4 were built to be held constantly throughout the day. Whether you're doing photography or doing video, it's kind of made for that pro market. Something like the GX8, I feel like, is aimed at the hobbyist where they're going to walk around all day with a camera strapped around their neck and they're going to pick it up and take a few photos here or there and they're not going to be holding on to it the entire day. Those people more care about the size. Some of them care about the look of the camera. But all in all, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where, uh, you know, you notice that design. And it's the same thing with the Canons. Uh, you know, they don't give something like the Rebel a huge grip because they're trying to make it small and it's not necessarily targeted at the pro market. It's targeted at the enthusiast market where something like a 70 uh, or goodness, even a 5D, you know, first off, they have to build a bigger camera, but also too, uh, they put a big, nice grip on it so that you can hold it all day and not get fatigued from it. What I really love about the GH3 and GH4 form factor is that while it makes it slightly bigger and DJ hates that, if you put the bottom grip on it, which you can find them for 50 bucks if you find some kind of knockoff of it, I think it's like 150 if you buy the Panasonic one, but that bottom grip actually provides a small support for your pinky and it just balances the camera perfectly. And even though I rarely use necessarily the vertical grip, if I'm going to be out all day doing photos, I'll usually put the vertical grip on uh, just because I feel like it just makes the camera slightly longer uh, so my whole hand can fit it perfectly, but teach now, their own. Side note about the vertical grip is actually an issue that I ran into. And I, after this happened to me, I, I refused to ever use <laughs> the vertical grip for any kind of video shooting at all. We were shooting on a 5D Mark III and both cameras had grips on there because I was tired of changing out batteries. And I was like, oh yeah, I'll just put a grip on and then that's fine. I'll get more battery life. No problem. Well, one of the cameras started developing this weird purple line in the video footage and it would come on and then go off and they'd come on and go off. And I was like, Oh man, this something's busted in the camera. We were shooting in like a foggy kind of stormy area. And so I was really obvious. Camera, yeah. I was putting the camera through some, like some, some sort of rougher terrain and some rougher treatment. And I was like, Oh man, I busted my five D Mark three. We're going to have to shoot on this camera. And somebody walks over and they're like, why do you have grips on there? I'm like, well, because I needed more battery. And they're like, well, why don't you take them off? Those suck. I hate grips. And then they told me the same story. They're like, I had problems with my camera years ago and I never use a grip. It's bull crap. You know, don't use a grip. <laughs> well, so we took the grip off, threw the battery in. No problem with the camera. It turns out that the terminal lugs on the grip, because they're spring loaded and push up against mm-hmm. there they were just not making good enough contact and it was under voltaging the camera, but not enough to completely drop it out. It was just enough to cause like weird errors to happen while Mm -hmm. we were using the camera. So after that happened to me, absolutely no grips whatsoever (laughs) on cameras while shooting. I would rather have a cutout plate and have to change them out on a regular basis. 
then deal with that sort of mess again or use a dummy battery and terminal it back to something that's proper like a, a v-lock or anton bauer sure sure it's, in, so in defense fun. in defense against panasonic is that it's one of the few battery grips where you keep the battery in the camera as well as adding an additional battery to the grip uh as opposed to i know a lot of the cannons a lot of the cannons are you put both batteries in the grip and then put the you know the grip puts a dummy battery in so to each their own but uh for me i kind of love the feel of it and i like I said, only when I'm doing photography, when I'm doing video, there's usually a bit of rigging audio gear and crap like that. So it's kind of pointless because yeah, there's so much other stuff going on. But if I'm doing walk around photography or something like that, I really enjoy having it, even though I rarely, you know, maybe use it vertically. Uh, just the fact that it makes it a little bit chunkier and makes it a little bit easier to hold because I hate camera straps. And I, I may be in the minority, but I, I don't like having camera straps on. One of the things that Devin was talking about, and this is actually a fairly interesting design choice, and here's my GH4. If you look at the bottom right here, these pins are actually where the battery grip uh, brings the power into the camera itself. Also, the same terminals that they use in order to interface that uh, XLR slash uh, SDI output system. So then the terminal itself is sort of your PowerPoint and the battery compartment continues to stay the same. Interesting way to do it. Uh, Canon's actually goes directly into the battery compartment itself, and it's kind of a hokey design. Now, I will admit, I was using some lower-priced grips on there, so possibly <laughs> Canon's actual name-brand grips might be better than the ones I used. But uh, Devin's grabbing something right now. Again, what again apologies to people who are doing the... Uh, audio version of the podcast uh but here i'm holding up the uh, bottom grip and as i was pointing out if you see uh when i grip my hand on it uh my pinky actually falls right on that lower grip and it just makes this nice cubby hole and it's just so much more secure and i love the way that it works as well as the vertical grip too because it's longer it's much easier to hold that way too so i actually really enjoy having that bottom grip on there like i said this one i actually got isn't officially panasonic you can kind of tell by the buttons have already started to wear out you know you can't read white balance anymore or anything like that and a lot of the scrolling pieces don't have any soft touch to them they're cheap and plastic but for what i need it works fine because it gives me an added battery uh one thing that people complained about though was that it screws up your quarter 20 on the bottom instead of it being in the middle it actually shifts it over for about uh, 25 bucks on ebay there's people who make 3d printed plates that'll shift that back into the middle for you it adds a little bit of height but still I enjoy it. And on the Panasonic, I've never had a problem, even though I'm using an off brand, uh, you know, and I, I think it gives me that perfect grip that I'm looking for. And like I said, it, for me, it's usability. It, it's how easy it is to grip and use the camera. And I can carry this all day without a care in the world, um, as opposed to something like uh, the GX8. I imagine I'd get pretty fatigued and worried about dropping it after a while. Yeah, that's a good point, man. Uh I guess like your form factor it depends on your hand size and everything else too. With Devin and I both again big mitts. My wife prefers little tiny cameras. She really loves my LX100 for that reason because it's such a mm -hmm. cute little petite thing. Now moving on down the line here, we've kind of gone into that rat hole a little bit. I got two more <laughs> things to cover before we get out of here. And first is actually Lightroom. We talked uh, earlier last week about Lightroom coming out with an update 6.2 that basically screwed up all of your import options and, and screwed up everything 
yeah, not everything, but they definitely took away a lot of the features that were available for importing images. Uh, one that's really handy is the eject card when complete and some of the mm. convert options as well. They as angered the-, the masses. There were yes. pitchforks and flaming torches outside the gates of Adobe. And this article up on petapixel.com, there's a link on it in the show notes. Uh, basically, they are talking about how Adobe is caved. Uh, Adobe has decided <laughs> that they are going to go ahead and bring back all those features. So if you did download and install 6.2, I believe is the version, you can restore back to 6.1.1 and get those features back until the new version comes out, I think, at the beginning of next month. Uh, They also introduced a number of bugs with uh, the 6.2 update, which were causing uh, crash issues as well as the uh, cache file reading. So if you're editing images on the fly and you have, say, an SSD with 20 gigs of a photo cache available for you to work off of like I do, uh, (laughs) then you will get multiple crashes. Uh, Trick two also is just clear your cache and let it rebuild and then you'll be good to go. But uh, pain in the butt regardless. So Thanks, Adobe, for listening to everybody complain at you. Uh, this is probably one of the first big screw-ups Adobe's made in quite some time. Uh, do you remember, when's the last yeah. time they screwed up like this? Uh, Adobe's been making people happy. And for I've been using Adobe probably since uh, CS3, roughly. Uh, so I'm not that old, but still. Uh, they've been. It's one of those where I've noticed that since probably CS6, creative cloud adobe's been kind of crashing more and more in terms of premiere and after effects uh but and it's never been enough i think that's caused any alarm for anybody else but they've been adding new features and they still have been improving stability i feel like the newest version of creative cloud is probably the most stable i've had it since cs6 uh which i'm absolutely thrilled with really yeah I, i mean maybe it has something to do with my workflow the workflow that we had at the uh the station and stuff like that but uh, when uh, we upgraded from CS6 to Creative Cloud in 2014, there was just a lot of sporadic ra- uh, crashes and things that just didn't seem to work well. And 2015 seems to be super stable. I actually haven't had a crash on it yet So uh, on my home machine. So uh, uh, I've been happy in all that department. But you're right. Like Adobe's just been adding features. And a lot of what they've been doing is listening to how people use their software and I don't know what happened with Lightroom. It's like maybe they're like, oh, well, only 1% use these features, so it shouldn't be that big of a deal for us to drop it. And then the 1% got super loud. And I think even the people who aren't the 1% joined on the bandwagon to start uh, you know, trying to light the, uh, the Church of Adobe on fire. So everything went downhill from there. So, of course, Adobe is going to reverse it because they really upset the masses with uh, all the changes that they made. And so... I, but I can understand why they're doing it because it costs money every time they try to update that, like make that compatible with Windows 10 and everything else. Like that costs time to include all those features. And so I think from a business standpoint, they're starting to reach a point where they go, we got too much going on because we're trying to support too many different kind of workflows. We need to pull back and start channeling people into like kind of one or two proper workflows. I think that's what they're trying to do here. And it kind of went all wrong and squirrely because everyone wants things their way. So Well, one of the big issues, actually, is they use statistical monitoring on the usage. So 
if they see something that someone that a large group or a majority of users are not using, then they will they will sunset that particular application. So in the case of this, um, according and Adobe even brought this out in their original announcement, they're like, hey, statistically speaking, only mm -hmm. like three or four percent of the people actually even mess around with these features. Most of them don't even know it exists. And I think you and I actually had a conversation about Lightroom months and months ago, and I was like, you know, you could just convert to DNG on the fly, and you're like, what? I'm like that yeah. little line up at the top, man. You just click DNG and it auto converts. And you're like, I didn't even know that was there. And it's, you know, it's yeah. up there. But like, that's the kind of thing that you get into where you don't use a feature. So you don't even worry about it. And After Effects, as well as Premiere Pro, they all have those sorts of things like hidden deep down in the menus. You know, for the longest time, I would use for audio, if I recorded a, a two channel setup, I would use fill right and fill left and copy the clips. Mm -hmm. I didn't even realize that when you right click on there, there's an audio selector option that you can click on in uh, Premiere Pro that allows you to simply mono each of those channels on the same clip so that you don't have to duplicate the work in order to get both of them in left and right channels. And it's stuff yep. like that, that, you know, I'd been doing it all okay. day and then I stumbled across this. I'm like, you know, I've been doing this wrong for <laughs> like five years and this feature has mm -hmm. probably been available and I didn't know about it. And that's the it, other thing, like they need to come up with a better way than the tip of the day to tell us about these new features. Because, you know, you go to Adobe site and they'll have like 40 Adobe evangelists that are like, hey, here's the greatest thing that we've got here. And here's this mm -hmm. other thing. And you see and you're like, ooh, that looks really sweet. Like when they introduce the puppet tool, for example. But right. then about it you don't really do anything with it and then you're trying to figure out how to use it trying to figure out how to implement it maybe it uses some sort of uh, mo uh, mocha tracking system or something else that you're you're not familiar with and you're trying to figure out what it, what it does they ought to have something that like basically goes into a tutorial format with premiere pro and yes i know guys there are premiere pro tutorials for everything online and available from adobe as well as other places but maybe like uh you know when you install chrome for the first time and it gives you a little like highlight window this is here's this click on it here's this this is what it does here's this and i know that's super There's dumbed down and easy but man i would love to be like okay i need to use uh, this uh, stabilization warp stabilization system like there's 20 settings what the hell is this like last one down here at the bottom do I, I don't even know what that means like well, and there's, there's no bigger example of this than with after effects because after effects has so many effects that can be used in different ways i was watching a free tutorial on how to do those um those very long 2d shadows for objects that like extend past the video frame like the composition uh, yeah. uh, just stylistically i was trying to find a few different ways to do it try to figure out what works best for me and one of them was the guy just used a giant blur that blurred it across and then did um a matte choke but did it negative on the matte choke so instead uh, of choking it it actually expanded smart. it and then gave it hard edges and so there's all these little effects that like you even if you try playing with it you won't really learn any good ways of using it unless you come into a situation where like this is the best way to use it um and then same thing too there's a there's an effect i didn't even know called the um uh, something composition or whatever but basically what it does is if you take your like let's say you blur out your text you can't read the text anymore but you put this effect on the very bottom and it takes whatever the original thing was before all of your effects and throws it back on top so you don't have to do two layers if you're trying to do a shadow effect or something like that underneath another object. Something like that that just like minimizes project uh, you know, load and everything else is super critical. And you don't know unless like the more time you spend with it, the more time you try learning it. 
And a lot of people don't even know all the integration between Adobe Story and Premiere. Like Adobe's really like, uh, I think Adobe Story's uh, their their tech support. So if you drop a script in there, like it'll yeah. actually do XML data attached to each of your clips and search the clips with uh, voice recognition and then match it up to your script. So you, if you're doing a really long format, like feature length film or something like that, it'll actually bundle your clips up into sections from the script if you have the script in story before you move on to premiere right it's like a, it's a tool that no one even uses it it's so freaking amazing yeah yeah and it's it's little things like that that you know they don't talk about because they move on to the new features like their morph cut tool which i've used uh which you know works great when there's an opportunity that can utilize it and now all the um I, i've been watching all the new stuff that they're coming out with soon the the thing in audition where it'll remix a song to be an exact length uh, things like that, that normally, you know, would take you an hour of cutting and splicing and beat matching. Now it does in seconds. It's like everyone's looking at that and they forget like some of the basic things that Adobe, you know, audition and everything else can do that can just save you time in general because everyone's looking at the new flashy effects. So it's just one of those that's like, there's no way to get around it, but you know, to always try learning. And if that's what you want to do, you want to edit and stuff is learning how to master your software, learning, you know, things like color, like the new color paint and all that kind of stuff. Everyone's all like staring at that. And I'm like, that's really great for people who don't know color, but there's also some stuff that you only learn if you're sitting there using a three wheel color corrector and curves and everything else as effects on your timeline, especially if you jump uh, over into after effects. shot, man. If someone heard you saying you're doing color grading with curves, I, I've been yelled at multiple times for doing that. Oh, well, you see, for me, it was always, uh, it, it's, it's because after effects, that's how I started out. Uh, like a quick tip, uh, when I would try to color match two different objects, like say recorded with completely different cameras on a green screen or something like that. Uh, I would go like blue channel, red channel, green channel, and then I would go through curves and I would adjust the contrast of each of those curves so that it matches the rest of the image because it'll be all black and white. So it'll be really easy to tell if the contrast is off. And then when I pop back to RGB, it's like perfectly color balanced to the other image because you've gone through and made sure that it has as much green, as much red, and as much blue as anything else needs. So I, I grew up in effects, doing more After Effects than I did editing or color. So I learned how to use curves in lots of different ways. But you have to understand too, there's limitations to curves. There's, you know, curves doesn't really affect hues or saturation so much. So yeah. there's better ways to, you know, use that workflow. So uh, as well as trying to do something like a color temperature shift, it's really difficult with curves, uh, <laughs> nearly oh, impossible. So it's one of those things that, you know, the right tool for the right job. But that's why it's always good to experiment and try different things. And if, if you're interested in editing and all that kind of stuff, it's like there's so much free information out there you should be out there learning everything you can and trying everything you can because the cool part is is unlike shooters it's pretty easy for you to just sit in your room and download footage and play around and learn the software to your heart's content where shooters kind of like need to go out and shoot something and find something to shoot and you know if you you, you won't have any experience shooting somebody riding a horse unless you go out and shoot somebody riding a horse so you know or you know shooting out of a car or something like that so yeah, For I editing. definitely prefer the hands-on filming to the editing portion of my tasks most of the time. Um, for editing, and uh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but uh, this is kind of an important thing for those of you that want to get deep into editing and aren't familiar with it or haven't done very much of it. Um, I, I myself, I edit all the time, but I pay for a subscription to Udemy and to uh, lynda.com. And this is not Linda. an advertisement com. for either one of those, but... Every but if they'd like to sponsor us, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, bring on the cash. I would love love a podcast sponsor for this show. 
but seriously, I pay for those subscriptions. And the reason I do is because every time they come out with a new version of CC, uh, both of those, either, usually Udemy beats mm-hmm. uh, Linda to the punch, but the Linda.com courses are a little bit more in-depth and a little bit better. Um, so whichever one, I think Udemy's cheaper. Uh, but the thing is, is when you go watch those, they they skip over like the simple stuff and they go right to the meat and potatoes of what's new in the product and cover as much as they can. And by watching those, like you, you probably only retain like 20 or 30%, but that 20 or 30% makes you that much better the next time you jump onto a project. And if you start mm-hmm. using even like three of those features that you find out about and the, they become part of your regular tool base when you're editing, it, it will really speed up your time, your time for getting your product out to your customer from the time it gets to your timeline. And there's a lot of different ways to do things like Devin said, you know, especially in After Effects, but in Premiere as well. Like it's audio editing, uh, bringing your stuff over to Edition, like knowing how to do that correctly, how to uh, crossfade your audio into something else or what type of transition to use between clips if you're trying to insert stock footage, how to grade and color correct that using the new color features. All those things are addressed in these in these classes. And I should go back and watch them two or three times, only watch them once, but <laughs> definitely worth investing in if you are trying to get deep into editing and uh, um, After Effects composite stuff. Absolutely. And I mean, me personally, I should watch it more than once, uh, but I usually just settle for taking notes. Uh, as weird as it sounds, I'll actually have um, a paper notebook and I'll write down notes as I watch it and then I throw away the notebook. But uh, something about writing it down and doing something tactile for my brain uh, helps me to remember it and keep up with it. All right, last thing before we get out of here, and we went from a short show to a long show pretty fast. Devin and I. Um, I've got the Chromecast audio here, and uh, this is kind of uh, not related specifically to video editing, filmmaking, or anything, but it's super handy, guys. Um, I have an old classic stereo. It's a 1931 Philco Tombstone radio, a big monstrous guy that I put new speakers in, have a nice power amp in. And for the longest time, I've been using Bluetooth to send audio from my phone or my laptop over to the stereo. And it sounds okay, but I didn't realize how bad it sounded <laughs> until I got this Chromecast audio. Uh, the If you're familiar with the Chromecast devices, the, the Chromecast is usually used to send uh, a web screen over to your TV. So you have an HDMI input and then it's powered by a micro USB port. This is the same thing only with audio only. And the audio quality for this is superb compared to the Bluetooth system I was using before. My stereo, while I was sort of disappointed in the quality, as soon as I started listening to it with this, I am much happier with the quality. It's 35 bucks. Definitely sounds good. This is my pick of the week, by the way. And Devin, you have another version of this, and there's some downfalls <laughs> sure. to this particular one. Yeah, that, man. Um, well, it's it's one thing that you should include too for the audio purist per se is that it does include optical output. Oh yes, I haven't it seen does. anyone use it yet. I haven't seen even an adapter for it. I imagine it's basic 3.5 optical adapter, like most people. But um, what I actually ended up getting it's a funny story about this. Uh, so this was on, I think, Indiegogo, and what I'm holding up is a giant, small, black piece of plastic, and this uh, this is called a Joy Drone or something like that, and I originally tried to get it on Indiegogo. Uh, something happened, like they failed funding or something like that. They moved over to Kickstarter uh, and then got successful on that, and the day that this showed up, 
is the day that Google had their IO thing and they announced the Chromecast audio. I ended up getting one of those too because of promises of multi-room audio and everything else. Uh, but this guy sells for about 22 bucks. And what he does is he takes, uh, it, it could be a modern Chromecast as well, but in this case, an old Chromecast uh, and you just plug it in. Uh, and then on the end of it, it's got a 3.5 millimeter, you know, which you could do RCA or, uh, you know, auxiliary, whatever you do a 3.5. So, uh, and that's it. It doesn't require external power for a while for my stereo. I actually, uh, unlike DJ, I was not a fan of Bluetooth just because I wanted to, we, we have, hey, no, I didn't say I was a fan of Bluetooth. That was just the only wireless choice I had seen. Sure. Sure. We have a uh, part of the receiver goes to speakers that are out on the patio and Bluetooth would never reach between the patio and where the stereo is located in the living room. So I needed a Wi-Fi option. And for a while I was using like a Wi-Fi radio that was DLNA. And then I was using DLNA adapter software on my Android device that would take Google music and, and pump it out to DLNA. And then Google changed their Chromecasting format. So that wasn't allowed anymore. And so I ended up actually taking a Chromecast, plugging it into a VGA adapter, HDMI to VGA in order to get analog audio out to pump that in the stereo is a big mess. It required a power adapter, everything else. So I'm like, this is the answer to my prayers. This doesn't require any power. It just plugs in and it just works. Um, it also works in the new Chromecast too. But um, what some people have mentioned uh, is that uh, there's certain compatibility that isn't available on Chromecast audio that's available for Chromecast. I think early on YouTube wasn't available, but I think they've changed that because YouTube is changing the way they're doing like music and its combination with Google music. And I heard that Spotify premium doesn't or Spotify non-premium doesn't work on Chromecast audio, but it does work on a normal Chromecast. So even though this adapter is like 22 bucks, I don't know. Part of me would be like, well, buy Spotify premium, get rid of the ads anyways. But uh, if you do have an old Chromecast lying around, you could upgrade it for 22 bucks instead of spending 35 bucks to turn it into or buying a Chromecast audio device to each their own. Uh, but anyways, uh, I've used this guy for a while. He works great as well as the Chromecast works. There's never a connectivity problem and the audio actually sounds pretty great out of it because obviously they have to use some kind of DAC, but I've been impressed the DAC and it's pretty good. So uh, teach, I love it. I'm still waiting for the multi-room features to come out. I want to know if it'll work with ordinary Chromecasts that are plugged into TVs, because that would be brilliant, or if it's only going to work with the Chromecast audio adapters. And even if it does still, I'm looking for cheap multi-room that doesn't cost me $1,000, a.k.a. Sonos. That's really what I want. What would you do, though, with multi-room video cast? I mean, are you going to throw, like, a party and have, like, rave screens in every room uh, that are flashing just, at the same rate, or what? No, no, it's just because most rooms already have a Chromecast plugged into the TV, which by proxy is plugged into some kind of speaker system. So uh, it would just be convenient because in my situation, I already have several Chromecasts plugged in around the house, as opposed to if it only does Chromecast audio, I got to get separate speakers or, you know, use a different input on the speakers and it becomes a bit more messy. So I'd like it to just be able to use your TV audio as well, if that's available, but still... I, I'm waiting for this feature. They haven't announced like when they're going to come out. Just everyone's talking about they will eventually update it and they'll eventually have multi-room audio. Uh, you know, and I wonder how well it'll sync and everything else. But for a long time, I've been using Logitech Media, whatever, with Raspberry Pis, which if you're really tech savvy, is a really, you know, fun way to spend five weekends of your life is setting, you know, <laughs> multi-room audio up out of Raspberry Pis. Uh, but I want a simple, elegant solution that, you know, when people come over, friends come over, anyone can use and do some multi-room audio. And I'm hoping that for Google, this is the answer because I cannot afford Sonos and Sonos is the only easy to use multi-room audio system 
uh, besides, you know, those house systems where you use one receiver to drive an entire house. Yeah, the the other nice thing about the uh, Chromecast audio is that uh, it does have the op. Oh man, I just lost my train of thought. Well, I was going somewhere with that, and then oh no, I I'm, I'm done. I I don't have anything better to say about this. Great audio, good quality. Oh, I do remember one other thing though, and that is that they're including this in some speaker systems. So keep that in mind. Oh yeah, one like a because the the two applications for me that the multicasting would be nice for is. A, I know this is weird, but it'd be nice to have like a shower radio, you know, like oh, yeah. one in the bathroom, and it'd be nice to have one in the in the kitchen because you know in the morning, like I'll I'll get up and I'll cook cook breakfast for my wife mm-hmm. or whatever, and like I'm going from room to room, and the stereo I have covers most of the house, but it doesn't really cover the kitchen or the bathroom. So you know, if like I'm listening to something interesting and I want to like continue that on as right. the podcasting goes into the shower, I can shower and then get over to the kitchen, make my breakfast and whatever, and, and that's I like. And, 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 See, the weird part is, is that I've already nerded out on all this stuff you're talking about so hard because I already have like water tooth, Bluetooth speakers what? that are connected to a do- uh, Android tablets that I've set up so that like when I turn the speaker on and it connects with the Android tablet, I use Tasker to automatically start feeding audio to that and start playing <laughs> stuff that I want to play. Uh, as well as I have a uh, Amazon uh, Alexa over there that um, I use for turning off lights and for playing music and everything else. So I'm already super connected with all that kind of stuff. I've already nerded out way hard. And that's why even somebody like me, who's very technical and knows, you know, enough to make a Raspberry Pi multi-room monstrosity. uh, I'm excited for Chromecast audio because if it can really deliver multi-room audio in a simple to use way that anyone can use it, then that's big for the uh, the WAF, the wife acceptance factor. Now, one last thing on the Chromecast, and I did remember what dropped out of my brain. <laughs> it was the fact that my stereo, uh, the stereo that I'm using, the power amp, actually has a unloader that shuts it off when it doesn't sense an audio signal, uh, when the signal basically goes to zero after a certain amount of time. And one of the things I have running into with this is that the unloader kicks on between songs. So you'll hear the really? relay click. Yeah, because it actually goes dead zero, like output right. on this guy, as opposed to you know leaving a little bit of audio noise, which most uh, um, head most most do, devices so. would. Like even your cell phone would still have yeah, a signal have going out. To keep keep it going. Well, this drops out to almost uh, basically no signal, and so the relay clicks to shut off the uh, load to the speakers, and then it clicks again when the song starts. So if you don't have the smooth transition setting turned on for Spotify. Like you every so often you get <laughs> click, 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 click. Right. And it's between songs it's sort of frustrating. So I'm gonna have to figure out some way to uh correct that. You just at- you just override it and then you move the entire power system over to like a remote control, like a Wemo or something like that. Because that, that's actually what I set up because I didn't want of course you don't want to re- leave your receiver on all day because it gets hot and you're gonna like burn it out. But uh when I sit on the patio, um I mean I have it all tied to one button on my phone for tasker. Um, you know, one of these like flick buttons, which is a programmable button for uh, Android and iOS devices, but I'll press one button and then it automatically turns on the stereo and then it goes over to the Chromecast and starts telling the Chromecast audio, what music to play and stuff like that. So that's how I deal with it because I don't, I, my stereo is a Kenwood from 75 or something like that, 74. So it doesn't have any fancy relays to sit there and flip on and off. Yeah, the next project is actually installing a full tube driver system in a Philco radio uh, tombstone <laughs> and then open it up so that it's just glass so you look into the tubes and then mm-hmm. the uh, 
uh, a Chromecast audio will plug into the back of that. And so it'll be wireless with like a, also a very picturesque uh, stereo. <laughs> uh, that's going to be a grand to get done. You though, audio so. nerd. Yeah. You audio nerd. All right. On that note, we've dove way off of the topic. Yeah, of, of we already were talking about filming. cameras. Um, Devin, where podcast. can people find you, man? Uh, you can ask me about home automation questions at DevoCut on Twitter. All right, guys, and you can find this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, so on and so forth. Devin did point out to me that apparently somehow our, uh, what is it, Pocket Cast, I think, uh, has us down as DSLR film noob with an yeah. N. So I don't know how that happened. Uh, if anybody knows how to fix that, uh, go go for it, because I'm probably not going to chase that down. But uh Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Make sure you go subscribe, hit the like button, do all that kind of stuff because that helps us. Maybe someday we can get lynda.com to sponsor <laughs> our show. Great. And that note, thanks for listening to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Episode 60 was fun! Oh, that is a really loud. <laughs> No, it's fine.